A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. What time is that? That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home, those, those, those boys. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. Richie Sadler's here, Richie, how are you? How are you, lads? How are you, lads? Richie, how are you, lads? How are you doing this week? I'm marvellous. Look at the joy on my face. Look how happy I was. What the fuck happened? <laughs> no, really. You know, what happened? When John was young, everyone in the city knew about it, but no one had seen it. It is not war and death and famine. It's not that at all. It's the opposite of that. It's persuaded of the world outside of that. That's why sport's important. It's a week of celebration here on the Irish Times Second Captain's Podcast. Oh, my David, Kieran Murphy and Ken Early are all here, all celebrating. Hello there. Hello, hello, hello. How you doing there, Owen? Oh, pretty good, yeah. To mark our 250th edition, we're bringing you six shows this week. Three of them are already out, including a special extra bonus deluxe remastered director's cut, Bill O'Hurley. Uh, Bill was good enough to be in the studio here yesterday. It's not, I'm just jazzing it up, Ken. It's, it's a Bill O'Hurley program. Just thought I'd throw in a few prefixes oh, oh, there. Oh, right, okay. So standard industry style. No, we haven't actually remastered it. No, it's the same one that we did. Okay. Sorry for the confusion. On, uh, on vinyl. <laughs> Sorry for the early confusion. <laughs> With the special behind the scenes. <laughs> we'll have two shows for you today, including this football podcast right here. You're still following me, Ken? Yeah, yeah. no, no. Yeah, all right. I'm oh, sorry. For quite clear so far. <laughs> this features two of the care. best football journalists in the world, Tim Vickery and Sid Lowe, both on. And tomorrow morning, we have a cracking interview lined up with one of the men responsible for, I would say, the most impactful football programme on television in the 1990s, Fantasy Football League, David Bedil, Ken. Big Chelsea fan, interviewed Jose Mourinho lately. So I'm going to talk to him about all of that, his love of football and various issues surrounding it. Yes, his, uh, his love of Chelsea, his love of England, his the, the effect that he and Frank Skinner maybe had on on things. You know, um, like uh, the Yates line, did that play of mine send out certain young men, the English shot, or something along those, those mm. lines. You know, to, if, if he thinks that maybe... Every time he hears the word banter, banter. <laughs> <laughs> no. shiver, an involuntary shiver this goes is down never, we, Me and Skinner never meant for this to happen. We never even <laughs> what said is this, the word yeah. banter. What yeah. is this Robbie Savage punditry career? Actually, what me and Skinner were doing wasn't like this. <laughs> maybe, so maybe along those He's a really, yeah, really smart, interesting Bill's guy. So Tim Lovejoy's house. Looking Thank forward to that'll be out for you. That'll be ready for your drive to Stradbally tomorrow if you're heading to Electric Picnic or whatever you're doing. You can have a listen to that on Friday morning. I was kicking myself last night, I must say, I was watching Arsenal in the Champions League and at the end of Ortiz's coverage, Darren Maloney was really excited talking about this match that was ongoing between Stau Bucharest and the Bulgarian team Ludogorets who had equalised. The Bulgarian side had equalised at the end of normal time. Their keeper had been sent off in extra time. Uh, the centre half had gone in goal for the penalty shootout. It was poised at two all as Ortiz were going off the air. And I thought, wow, that's interesting. Then immediately just forgot about it and did whatever else I was doing. Rather than thinking, haven't Sky Sports launched a new European football channel in which this probably match is probably being that. screened? Mm. No, no. So I moved Absolute away. Friends is on Comedy Central. Huh? Then half an hour later, checked in with Twitter to see that it was ablaze. It was a light with all this. Oh my God, this is unbelievable. I've never seen this before. This centre half, Cosman Motti, has scored his own penalty, saved two of Stowe's penalties <laughs> to win the game, uh, send his team into the Champions League, and then has 
haired off into the crowd. I've already seen a player sprint as enthusiastically into a bunch of supporters. A big man as well. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he looked like one of those uh, Richard Dunn type centre halves who, you know, it's all about reading the game. You know, the first 10 yards, mm. hopefully the first 15 yards are in the head. So when he was speeding off towards the crowd, it, was, it wasn't that fast. Uh, but I was quite impressed by his manner on the penalty, uh, for the penalties, where he was just leaping about in the go mode before, uh, before the shot was taken. <laughs> uh, he did manage to create quite an impression and pulled off a couple of amazing It's things. just not the same watching it on Vines the next day, if yeah. I'll be honest, but there you go. You know, the, it, it can be quite disconcerting for a penalty taker to see someone who clearly doesn't have a clue what he's doing in goals. So the the guy's walking up to take a penalty and, you know, I'm sure he has, you know, a, a set of scenarios in his head. Right, if it goes to penalties, I'll have an idea of what of what, what the situation's going to be like. And then there's a the centre half in goals <laughs> lepping around like a One of his dick. saves was absolutely superb, It by was the way. absolutely brilliant. Yeah, clawed one out You know, we, uh, I, I hate to bring another Gaelic football story into this, right? But I was playing <laughs> in a team, right, that had a goalkeeper... Uh, and we also had an absolutely brilliant midfielder, right? Mm-hmm. So the team we were playing against got a... This is in the Galway Senior Football Championship, so a, a, a game of reasonable importance. We got awarded a penalty. Our goalkeeper, we decided, was not good enough to save this penalty. So we threw our midfielder in goals. He was a citizen type, your, your keeper. Yeah, right at the very... like. So this is a penalty in the last minute. We're two points up. We put our midfielder in goals. And I, th- I think our, our midfielder didn't actually even move, but I think the whole furore around us putting a midfielder in goals actually took, you know, the the penalty taker was completely spooked. Yeah. And bl- I've never seen a penalty go as far wide <laughs> as this guy's penalty went. So, I mean, you know, maybe there's, maybe Murph, there's something yeah. in this, a merit in this. Murph turned to the bench and said, Van Hal, you were right. You were, you were a controversial appointment here at Milltown. We, we're we paying you a lot of money, Louis. We, we didn't sign up for the whole no. sweeper. It's uh, 12 men behind the ball, but that was a good call. I'll As that. part of our 250 celebrations, I should have mentioned that we have got a brand new website going live today, secondcaptains.com. So check that out. Very excited about that. We've got second captain survival kits to give away there. If you log on, featuring pencils, darts, robes, bags, t-shirts and sweatshirts, all emblazoned with the logo. And we're for all the essential stuff. Don't worry about that. If you come in, we'll tattoo that logo on your head as well uh, <laughs> to pick up that. Whatever it takes, we'll get that logo out there. Time for Ken Early's Report on Sport. Yeah, so another um, Irish football story in the Irish Sun. Uh, it's a good run they've had recently. John Delaney's new contract was announced in there. There's a story about FIFA giving the FAI 5 million euros um, around the time of the Thierry Henry handball also broken there. And now the story that Shea Given is apparently uh, about to return to the Irish uh, national team. Um, which is quite remarkable, really. I mean, he's 38 years old. Uh, he hasn't played for a couple of years. I mean, he retired a couple of years ago. Um, he hasn't been playing for Aston Villa, although he did have a loan spell at Middlesbrough and to, you know, last season, which went quite well. He played well. Um, but, you know, again, not in the Aston Villa team and no prospect really of getting back into it because it seems as though, even though he's now kind of working or was working on the staff with Paul Lambert at the end of last season, that Lambert is just saying, Che, look... <laughs> contract uh, you know if you if you want to play it's going to have to be somewhere else you, the choice is either stay here and finish your contract which is quite lucrative uh, he joined them on a five year deal from Manchester City a few years back either stay and earn that money or if you want to play it's going to have to be somewhere else that's your choice um, or maybe it's going to be with Ireland mm. um, I mean the story suggests that Given will only come back if he's given assurances about playing uh, what does assurance to playing mean? Does that mean assurance well, to being back number one? Yeah. Seems a little harsh on David Ford. Uh, Shea Given at his best, of course, I, th- I think it's inarguable was a better goalkeeper than David Ford. But Shea Given now, mm. it's very arguable that he's a better goalkeeper than David Ford. Yeah, um, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't. Let's wait and see if this really does. If this really does happen, uh, I I would be. Surprise! I mean, not, not surprised necessarily. I mean, I think it's clear that Shea Given did has wanted to come back. I mean, he he kind of suggested, I think, uh, to Trapattoni, oh, you know, maybe I'm going to be available after all. I mean, because this this situation at Villa has been going on for a while, you know, with with Guzan being the first choice. Um, Trapattoni wasn't interested, you know. He said, I think he retired. There's the argument that uh, his kind of leadership would be and his 
personality might be welcome around the dressing room. We've lost a lot of big players in recent times, including Richard Dunn. Might be good to get one of the experienced guys, one of our best ever players back. I don't know about that either. I mean, because, you know, while I'm not denying that Che Given has been a big, huge player for Ireland in the time of his career um, and was a leader for us and was a very important player in our dressing room and so on and so forth, he doesn't have a future with the Irish team. I mean, he, you know, his future with the Irish team is necessarily going to be short. Why, you know, it, it's almost as though he's... I mean, if if you bring in Given, why not bring in, you know, Mick McCarthy? Um, I mean, he was a big player and a, and a leader and a good influence in the dressing room from the past. You know what I mean? It's I, ju- I just uh, you're not convinced by it. No, I mean, it, it seems like we've got a we've got a team now which hasn't really got anything. Well, we still got Robbie Keane, I suppose. Um, but you know, Duff is gone, Dunn is gone, and these are the kind of players of players of Given's era that he. I mean, he's he's actually older than those guys, um, but they they were the guys who. But he played he's a goalkeeper. He if part he was still team. playing regularly in the Premier League, if he was uh, if he was tearing it up and was in the form of his life, it's one thing. But I, I understand your point. It's not that's not what it is. At the yeah, moment. and even if he'd continued playing, you know, you would say, right, let's let's keep playing him until. But you're making a very definite sta- not stand here, but you're taking a position that we're bringing this guy in for a specific reason. Yeah. We're going to take him in from the cold, and it doesn't seem. Yeah. 100% well, listen, clear this, what this, the story says he's looking for assurances. Maybe those uh, assurances won't come, and we won't see Shane Shea given playing for Ireland. I mean, I think that that's probably the most likely uh, scenario here, is it? Yeah. Well, I mean, we don't we don't know. I mean, it, it may yet it may yet turn out to be um, to be unfounded, but uh, yeah. Seems like he, he might be back. And, Arsenal and, are through to the Champions League. Eh? Yes, they are. Uh, Alexis Sanchez scored his first uh, real goal for Arsenal um, and st- put them into the Champions League. And uh, the question, though, for them is what are they going to do about this Giroud situation? Um, Giroud, having broken his tibia uh, and undergone surgery, he's going to be out until December. What are they going to do? Answer, nothing, <laughs> says Arsene Wenger. You ask who will buy to replace Giroud? At the moment, nobody. Um, he had surgery for broken tibia. He'll be out for three to four months on the competitive side. So basically, he can play in the league again at the, at the, around the end of uh, December. Um, I don't know about this. I mean, it seems to me as though they probably should do something there. I mean, at the moment, it's, it's a sort of Sanogo is their only real option. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, until they've got Walcott again, and there's there's Joel Campbell, but he's really again more of a more of a winger. What sort of level are you talking about, though? Is a player really going to want to sign, knowing that essentially what they're going to be long term is cover for another striker? Signed for four months, you're essentially going to be playing until Giroud uh, gets his fitness back. Yeah, but I think, I mean, what kind of player wouldn't look at Oliver, Olivier Giroud and think to himself, you know what? Yeah, you I'm going to back yourself here. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, Olivier Giroud is, is by no means a, a bad footballer. Um, but, you know, it's not as though he's, I think, an absolute elite player, you know, on a European level. It's as, as though he's, you know, he, he's an untouchable. Once he once uh, he's, that leg has mended, he's going to walk straight back in there. Mm, he, he might, and he, he depending on the quality of the replacement. But at the moment, they're not talking about getting a replacement. Maybe Wenger is just doing the anti... Ed Woodward, you know, maybe he maybe he says, maybe he says no, we're not going to sign anyone. But in a in a bizarre, I would call this a bizarre, maybe even unprecedented move. He's not telling the press the entire truth about transfer policy. See, I've you know maybe having watched Ed Woodward over the last two summers, I've realised that if you say you've got loads of money and are desperate to buy loads of people, yeah, that doesn't work out so good. It's not necessarily maybe Arsene Wenger is just he's just learned there. Yeah. He's, he's he's kept a close eye on goings on at Old Trafford and decided maybe this isn't the way to to go about the choppy waters of the transfer market. Well, speaking of those goings on, actually, uh, I mean, what you're saying there is backed up maybe by what we hear from the director of football at Ajax, Mark Overmars, today. And uh, this is in response to stories appearing in the Dutch press that Manchester United are going to go back and try and get daily blend from um, Ajax. Mm-hmm. Um, Mark Overmars says we believe we currently have a strong team we want Daly to stay for another year only if the absolute top price is paid is a transfer negotiable <laughs> so Daly's management know how we feel at the moment next year we'll have a much more lenient policy we're willing to talk with Daly and we'll settle for a reasonable price so 
Um, would Manchester United play, pay an absolute top price for Daily Blind? They'll break the world transfer <laughs> record. I mean, I think he's on. He's he's already stated that he will break the world transfer record. Well, they need if required. They need they, they need players. You know, they still need players. I mean, it's two hundred million now since Ferguson left on on uh, on incoming players, but they still need more. I mean, it was astonishing to see what happened to them against. Uh, um, MK Dons. Yeah, we haven't been on since that game, Ken. No, I mean, but and the thing was that this, I mean, okay, it's a, it's a kind of a reserve side, but there was still some big players in it. There were expensive players, and I mean, the, the cost of the starting eleven was sixty million pounds. The cost of the MK Dons squad was two hundred thirty-five thousand pounds. So, um, you know, <laughs> Manchester United really should not have lost this game 4 0. And I mean, the player who was really at the centre of it was Johnny Evans. Johnny Evans is supposed to be their defensive linchpin mm-hmm. this season. And he, and he was repeatedly um, beaten, uh, repeatedly made mistakes, even got away with a blatant handball that should have been a penalty um, in this, uh, and had responsibility for a number of these goals. That's that's a, an absolute disaster. You know what I mean? Well, I, I don't know how it is for his confidence. I mean, Van Gaal has spoken about the confidence being smashed down. You know, it keeps getting quoted back to him, that phrase. Uh, I don't know if he, if he necessarily meant it, but it's actually be getting that way now. You lose 4-0 at MK Dons. I mean, that's Johnny Evans has been thinking about that for a long time. Yeah. Um, there is uh, the other news about uh, Manchester United at the moment is that Wayne Rooney has, uh, just in the last few minutes, been named as the new England captain. Yeah. Um, so he's... Uh, <laughs> Really, he's the captain of Manchester United, the captain of England. It's quite a turnaround from his position uh, towards at the, at the end of Alex Ferguson's last season. Hodgson says he's the obvious choice. He's prepared to accept the pressure and the enormous responsibility. Being, pre- being captain of Manchester United in England, it's a lot of pressure for any footballer, I would have thought, and responsibility. Yeah. Um, Wouldn't be a big problem if you thought that Wayne Rooney was in any way captaincy material. Well, I think he is captain. You don't material. think so? Oh, well, f- we'll take it from a Manchester United perspective. Yeah. I do not think that he's an ideal captain of Manchester United because Give- he's tried to leave the club a couple of times. Or yeah. I mean, I, I think that professional I, football. I mean, he's there now. He's by all accounts, he's a well, certainly by Gary Neville's account, he's captaincy material. You referenced this last week, Ken. The way he conducts himself, the way he drives standards in the training ground, the way he demands the best from everybody this else. This is what Gary Neville was saying, yeah. yeah. I mean, it was a real, a really gushing piece about Rooney's um, unbelievable, what Vils Powers might call human qualities. Mm. Uh, he's got incredible human qualities. But I suppose when you look at the English uh, team, and this is where England are slightly different from um, Ma- uh, Manchester United, there's, I mean, he's by far the senior player. I mean, I don't mean, I mean, you've got a guy like Ricky Lambert in there who's you know, older than Wayne Rooney. But Rooney That is, would be controversial. <laughs> Rooney is by far the, the senior player in that dressing room. He towers over the others in terms of state. I mean, just just some of these names here. Forster, Foster, Hart. There's your goalkeepers. Baines, Cahill, Chambers, Jagielka, Jones, Danny Rose, John Stones, uh, Jack Colback, Fabian Delph. This is the England squad, you know. Uh, Jordan Henderson, um, James Milner, uh, Oxley Chamberlain from Arsenal, Raheem Sterling, Andros Townsend, Jack Wilshire, Ricky Lambert, Rooney, Daniel Sturridge, Danny Welbeck. Gary Cahill is your only yeah. rival there. Joe Hart, some would say, but I'm not sure at all. Joe I've seen Hart. Some I don't know if Joe Hart's yeah. captain's team material. I've seen some of the English journalists saying that he has beaten competition from Gary Cahill and Joe Hart. I, I would have said he's beaten competition from Gary Cahill, all right. Yeah, I mean, Gary Cahill is, you know, but, but again... Cahill, I don't know. I think I think Rooney is still towers above Cahill in terms of his his uh, standing in the in the game. So it would have been a bit strange, I think, for anyone other than Wayne Rooney to get the England captaincy. Whereas with Manchester United, you obviously had Van Persie, but I don't know if Van Persie is necessarily the kind of leader who takes people with him. <laughs> you know, you know what I mean. I don't know if he's necessarily that sort of empathetic figure. You know, whenever he's speaking to you, whenever he was speaking to me, I thought. He made me feel as though I was the most important person in the world. Uh, whenever he talked to me, I always felt as though, you know what, that's exactly what I thought. He just had that ability to to make people feel as though, yeah, you know, I agree with what he's saying because, you know, you know what... Mm. I, and Wayne, Wayne Rooney does that for you. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not sure, but I, I, I don't know. He does know. it for Gary Neville. 
he does I mean, a great. Uh, he, he, well, maybe I'm reading too much look, into he does, this. And Gary, Gary Neville knows him, knows him better than I do. So who am I to who am I to question? Do their pieces of news? But Platini's a big one today. He's not going to run against Blatter. Well, this this is just the news. I mean, Michel Platini has has confirmed he's not going to stand against Seth Blatter for the FIFA presidency. He's going to go for back for the UEFA presidency. He says it's about what I want to do at UEFA. A man who very evidently very keen not to have any kind of political confrontation with Seth Blatter. We remember what happened the last time Seth Blatter had a political confrontation. Mohammed bin Hammam was at that time the rival. And poor old Mohammed bin Hammam went down pretty spectacularly in flames as, uh, as a lot of stuff came out about him in, in the months and weeks leading up to the election and ended up being banned from football. <laughs> Completely banished from the game uh, and the busted flush. And, you know, that's the kind of thing that seems to happen to Sepp Blatter's political opponents. Michel Platini has said he's not going to stand. I mean, it's clear they, they were once, they, they used to uh, work quite closely together. But Platini was almost like, I wouldn't say a protege of Blatter because he clearly had a great standing in the game entirely separate of Blatter as a, you know, as a result of having been a great player. Um, but they were political allies. Um, but the idea was always that Platini would kind of walk away and allow well, Platini in there. Blatter, exactly. Blatter Sorry, excuse me. Away. Yeah, the Blatter would walk away and allow Platini in at some point. A, a just kind of happen. A, a Brown uh, Blair thing. But oftentimes, guys who are in power for years and years and years, when the time comes, time flies by, and then suddenly, when the time comes to stand aside, they find they don't want to stand aside. They've got a lot done, more to do. <laughs> Listen, I'm only seventy-eight years old, Mr. Platini. <laughs> you know, I feel like. I'm a no, sprightly you 78. Even, you haven't even seen the best of Seth Blatter yet. Well, the sickening ageism, you know, that yeah. that, that that goes around in the game at the moment. You know, this idea. No, that I'm guilty of and merely I because of, for that. merely because a man has been in the jo- in a job for almost two decades and is 78 years old, that it might be time to let someone else have a go. So, that he's only a mere 13 years past pensionable age. <laughs> you know, and people, you know, it's 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 wrong, and and I I hope that Seth Blatter in his next term uh, takes that on. You know, because it's, it's a big problem in the game. The next for the next decade, the major battle in football is against ageism, sickening ageism. That's the end of Gennady's report on sport. Every so often, I'm on the bus and I suddenly turn around to fight someone. John Hayes, I'm talking about, Owen. Yeah. John Hayes. Now, I always thought that was ridiculous. He had won the victory over himself. He loved Brendan Rogers. That's where it goes from. Thanks a lot, Pepe. Fair to say, anybody could have managed those guys? No, of course not. Let me show you right now for you give it up. Sid Lowe is on the line to, to talk about well there's quite a lot going on first of all Xabi Alonso to Bayern Munich for a uh, fairly small fee uh, this is partly I guess related to the age that he's at the stage he's at in his career but I don't think anyone doubts that this could be a good signing for Bayern Munich ideally would Real have offloaded him to a team who are less of a threat in the Champions League well, that was certainly one of the, the rationales that was kind of filtered out from the club when they sold Angel Di Maria to Manchester United was that, you know, this is a player who we've got an enormous fee for and he's going to a club who, who we're not competing against in the Champions League. Now, of course, the complete opposite is true in the Xavi Alonso case. They're, they're not going to get a huge fee. I think it will be around about 10 million in the end, 10 million euros, which obviously in pounds is, what, 7 million or 7.5 million, something like that. Um, and, to a, and to a rival that's... That, that's going to be a big rival in the Champions League. I think there's a, a very clear sense in Madrid, and this was, was enhanced by facing Bayern Munich last year, that obviously Barcelona are always the focus, that, but that beyond Barcelona, if they do want to try and challenge for, for some sort of supremacy in Europe, then Bayern Munich are a team that they have to take very, very seriously. How m- much of an impact will Alonso make there? My opinion on it is that, uh, that he's still fairly near the top of his game. Ken isn't so sure that he's, that he's still got what it takes. What do you think? I think I think I would agree with both of those things. In the, and I know that sounds contradictory, but <laughs> over the last, over the, and I'll explain why. Over the last two or three years, I think every time Alonso has been absent, Real Madrid have really struggled. Um, he's he's held the team together. He he gives them a, a solidity and a fluidity that they don't have without him. But it is also true that for, certainly for two of the last three seasons, I think last season actually he, he, he survived much better, but for two of the last three seasons um, he's reached 
March or April time and, and physically not been in great shape. And I think it's been harder for him. Um, he's a little slower than he once was, but he was never a player based on pace anyway. It's more about the intelligence and the range of passing. And in particular at Real Madrid, who plays so much um, that that ball to, to Ronaldo or to Bale, but largely to Ronaldo, that long diagonal, which was Alonso's main outlet ball, of course. That's really, really important for them. That said, he will be 33 in November. They have signed Tony Cruz, although I don't personally think that Cruz necessarily plays where Alonso plays, although I think he might now this season. Um, and, and it is a slightly strange move from Real Madrid's point of view. I think this is worth... It's worth kind of rewinding to Alonso's contract renewal, which was done in January when there was only when he was actually at a point where legally he could talk to other clubs because there's only six months left on his deal. Now that was a contract renewal that was celebrated, um, if you like, in kind of official terms. It was celebrated by Real Madrid and Carlo Ancelotti made made a, a big thing about how important this was. And Alonso was a was a vital player and he made things function for them. But it was a contract renewal that the very fact that it got that late, I think is an indication of the fact that both sides were not 100% sure this was going to happen. We're not 100% sure this was necessarily what they wanted to happen. And that, of course, then effectively sets in place the conditions for him to then move later on. In other words, Alonso was thinking, yeah, there were other options then, and I'm not sure if staying at Madrid was necessarily the right thing to do, but it's a, but it's a good decision for now. And at that point, he'd already spoken to Bayern Munich. And of course, the other thing to bear in mind is that from Real Madrid's point of view, and in particular from the point of view of the president, who of course is the deal breaker in, in, in every situation at Real Madrid, well, this was a player that sort of, maybe he wasn't sure about continuing at the time the club weren't that bothered. The club. It's worth pointing out, the club were not that bothered whether he continued. The person who was bothered and who really agitated for it to happen was Carlo Ancelotti. Ancelotti got his way. Real Madrid win the 10th European Cup. What tends to happen at Real Madrid when they're, when they're successful is that people become emboldened and think they can then do whatever they want. And, of course, that's when things tend to go wrong as well. Why do you think it would have been that Alonso might have thought, mm, I'm not sure if this is the place to be? I mean, Real Madrid are... You know, everyone who joins him says this is the biggest club in the world. Why would he want to? I mean, I do remember that when he was at Liverpool, he uh, he, he was quite annoyed by the fact that uh, Rafael Benitez seemed to want to replace him at one point. Even if even if that ended up not happening, Alonso seemed to be like, okay, well, if you don't want me, I don't particularly want you. Did something like that happen here? I think. Well, I think something like that has happened this time round. Bear in mind that Alonso Alonso would be entitled. Now, I, 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 you know, this is interpretive. This is not based on, on having spoken to Alonso about it. But Alonso would be entitled to believe they signed the Adamendi to replace me. The following summer, they signed Tony Cruz to replace me. They are edging me towards the exit. And of course, at 33 in November, maybe there's a degree of, of logic to that. I think the other thing is to to look at it from Alonso's point of view. It's not necessarily a case of saying, I don't want to be a Madrid, this isn't the right place. It's that this is a career path that takes in Liverpool, takes in Real Madrid. There's an opportunity to go to Bayern Munich to learn a little bit more from a different manager. And I just wonder if underneath all of this, this is Alonso preparing himself for a career in management who now would have managed, who now would have been managed by Benitez, Ancelotti, Mourinho, uh, Guardiola. And, and, you know, in terms of a grounding, getting different ideas from different managers who, who have all been hugely successful in, in, in very different ways as well. Uh, I think that, 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 that could well be a big part of this. I, I, I really wouldn't rule out this having been a, a decision based on, almost based on a kind of managerial apprenticeship as much as anything else. Yeah, it's some, some list of coaches, I suppose, that he's worked for. Um, do you think... Of course, at the John, start of it. John Toshik as well, Res, I see that. But he's... Uh, do you think he's got what it takes uh, to to do that? I mean, I don't know a huge amount about Xabi uh, Alonso apart from you know that he likes playing Sebastian and you know likes highly polished shoes. Uh, in the Diego Torres book, for instance, which is you know delving into the dressing room politics at Real Madrid, and you know some people suggest uh, that imagining a lot of what's going on, um, Alonso is comes across as this kind of. Uh, a bit of a, a bit of an operator, a kind of a, a guy who's uh, nobody's quite sure what side he's on. Hmm. Well, Alonso, uh, Sonny Alonso's uh, the, the, the people who are close to Alonso would say that what that just shows is this is a guy who's very very professional and, and of course follows his manager, which is what you're supposed to do, and and does what is and, and I think that perhaps is borne out by this transfer. This is a guy who who appeared to be the most Mourinhoista of all the Mourinho players, and now he's gone to play for Pep Guardiola, um, uh, Pep Guardiola, who by the way had told some of the Barcelona players that you know this is the guy that you thought was on your side. Well, look at him, look at how he's behaving. Um, so I, I think that suggests a, a degree of competitive competitiveness. Perhaps a degree of, uh, of 
if you like, political intelligence um, that other players haven't had. And I think I think I think Diego Torres's uh, perspective of that is, is 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 probably broadly right. This is someone that people couldn't always pigeonhole, and why couldn't they pigeonhole? Perhaps because he was intelligent enough to be his own man. Perhaps because he saw some of the other politics and just thought, well, this is you know this this is kind of petty warmongering amongst other players, and I don't want a part of it. I just want to play football and learn and, and compete the best I can. And if I'm at a club where Mourinho is the manager, then of course I'm going to, I'm going to become a Mourinho-style player, just as if he now goes to, to Bayern Munich, he'll learn things from Guardiola, who in theory at least, in terms of the, the, the philosophy and the idea of how to play, play the game, in theory at least is closer to Alonso. Sid, we haven't talked to you since the Di Maria deal went through and he seems to be leaving with a heavy heart, it's fair to say, and a few scores to settle with the top brass there. Are Manchester United going to be getting a fully motivated player? or uh, Well, not that Cesc Fabregas isn't motivated, but it strikes me as somewhat similar to Fabregas, who looks like he doesn't really want to be at the club that he's at. Well, I think I think in Fabregas's case, that's that's almost clear, isn't it? I remember, I did an interview with Fabregas, and it will be must have been around about this time last year, perhaps a little later in the year, September October time, when he was with the Spanish national squad, and him talking about how if he ever left, it would be to go to Arsenal. Um, he tried to go to Arsenal this time round, in in the sense that when when it looked like there was an exit, he he spoke to Wenger, had a had a long chat, and Wenger decided it wasn't a logical place for him in the team anymore, um, and then started thinking elsewhere. I think obviously Chelsea is 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 a good option for him in terms of the fact that I think he'll play very well. I think he's got a manager who will who will add certain elements to his game. I think he'll be successful. But yeah, maybe there's a slight sense that he didn't want it to be there. I don't imagine, to be honest, that that will last very long. In Ancel Di Maria's case, I suppose you... I mean, first of all, he is where he wants to be in that he wanted, he wanted a club where he felt like the central figure where he felt like everybody thought, you know, this is the guy that, that's going to make us really, really good. He's really important. We're going to play to his strengths. We, there's never going to be any question mark about his significance to us. Um, the other thing is, I suppose, in, purely in terms of performance, I, I, I think, um, I mean, I wouldn't quite put it in these terms, but I'm about to. Um, I think revenge is quite a powerful motivating factor. Um, that sense of proving yourself, that sense of showing people that they were wrong to let you go. I, mean, I think over the last... Over the last decade, you'd struggled to find a player who, in terms of attitude and, and commitment and, and therefore success, you'd struggled to find a better player, for example, than Samuel Eto'o at Barcelona. And a lot of that was driven by his sense of having been forced out of Real Madrid um, and also by his natural character anyway. So I, I'm not sure that's necessarily a problem for Manchester United in terms of, in terms of how Ancel Di Maria plays. Yeah, and uh, a lot of the players who have left there, a lot of the better players who have left that club, have gone on to do great things with their uh, with their next club. Uh, I can think of I mean, Schneider, Robin. Um, you would argue. I mean, I suppose you would argue. I say this as someone who watches Spanish football more than English football. You would argue that Claude McAllister was was very very important at Chelsea. Um, so yeah, it's 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 not like you lose you leave Real Madrid and you become a and, and you and you collapse. A lot of mm. players have left Real Madrid and prospered. It has been uh, an amazing summer for George Mendes. He seems to be just as as close with Real Madrid in the post-Jose Mourinho era as, as ever, or even closer. I mean, he's uh, the agent on the deal that takes James James Rodriguez to Madrid. He's then the agent on the deal that takes Di Maria out, and that's you know already rubbed to about 100, 130 million pounds worth. Totally, is something like 550 million euros this summer. It's um, insane. I, I mean, I heard, I heard. Uh, I must confess, I can't remember the exact figure, but I was was on the ra- Spanish radio the other day talking to to someone, and he, he read, reeled off this list of the people that Mendes had moved, and it was absolutely extraordinary. And also, by the way, that's the list of the players he's officially moved, the players he yeah. actually represents. He will be involved in brokering a lot of deals, even though he doesn't represent players as well. So, so the figure may be bigger. And um, I mean, it, and it also, it's it's a merry-go-round, isn't it? So it's saying to Real Madrid, right, I'm going to take Ancelotti. Maria off you, but don't worry, here's James Rodriguez. Oh, and by the way, would you like Radamel Falcao while yeah. we're at it? Well, that's what um, I'm wondering. Is I mean, there's still time. You know, there's well, no, there's no need for him to be finished yet. I mean, there's still time to... He, he, he wants it to happen, and, um, and Radamel Falcao very much wants it to happen to go to Real Madrid. The thing I've been surprised about, I must confess, is, is the level of apparent resistance from Real Madrid to the idea of, of buying Falcao. Um, at first, from, from what I was told at Madrid, was, well, you know, you don't just go buying loads of players. Now that they've got, because obviously there is a financial imperative here, now that they've got the money for Ancel Di Maria, that, uh, if you like, that obstacle is removed. And yet it still feels like Madrid are resisting this. And actually, there's a, there's a small element of, it feels almost, I would say almost desperate the way that, 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 that Jesse Foot Mendes are, are pushing Falcao. It's not to say it won't happen. I think there's a, still a chance that it will. But, but, but I have been surprised 
by the extent to which Madrid seemed to be resisting this. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's a slightly older, extremely expensive player with a recent bad knee injury, so you can, you can kind of understand, and, and they've got a lot of forwards, I'm not sure. But, well, they've what, only really got one centre forward, you see, this, and this is the argument from, from, from those who, who support the idea of Falcao going, they've got Benzema. Now, Benzema is a totally different style of forward, yeah. and Madrid's, Madrid's technical argument is you're creating a team in which the guy who's going to score the goals is actually your left winger, not your centre forward. Now, so your centre forward has to be there to facilitate him, to give him the ball, to move out of space, to open spaces for him, to make him a better player, rather than to score 25 goals in the season. So those arguments that Benzema doesn't score enough just just don't stand up. But, of course, the counter-argument is, yeah, OK, but you still only really got Benzema and Hesse when he comes back from injury, who, by the way, I think will, will be a very, very good player indeed. Mm. So do you need backup? And then I suppose the question is, would Falcao accept being backup? I think at Real Madrid he certainly would. But just the fact that they've, you know, they've sold Di Maria and now Alonso, um, they've signed, you know, Kroos, James and Kaylor Navas, um, they've, they really haven't spent that much money when you look at it. I mean, well, you know, in net terms, they haven't spent that much money. It makes me feel as though they've, they're, they're going to want to buy somebody else because they can Yes, uh, I think there's an element of truth in that. I mean, I, I, I've, I've said this lots of times before that even at Real Madrid, you can't just buy whoever you want. So, you know, the, the reality is that last year they, they signed Gareth Bale, so Ossil has to go because you need to generate money. And by the way, last year it could have been Ossil or Di Maria. Um, and I think Di Maria was very, very conscious of that when he went. But, you know, they keep trying to get rid of me. Um, this time they've succeeded, or this time I've succeeded. Depends who, you know, who you want to put the, the blame on. Um, but there is a difference, of course, between recuperating some of the money and recuperating all of it. And at the moment, I think I'm right in saying that the net spend at the moment is about 5 million euros because they've, they've had a, a whole handful of players go. Um, and, and I think that does suggest that they, they will be after someone else. Obviously, the other name that's been circulating a lot in Spain, and I must confess, I, I, I can't sum this up for you, but another name that's been circulating a lot in Spain has been Marco Royce, um, whose contractual situation, I believe, puts him in a position where he would actually be very cheap, because I think I'm right in saying that he's going into the final year of his deal at Dortmund, or maybe the final two years of his deal at Dortmund. Um, and, and of course, that would be, well, I think he's a brilliant player. I think that would be a good signing for anyone, although where exactly you put him in the round of the team is another question. Okay, well, we'll keep an eye on that one. Sid, always great to talk. Thanks, Mill. My pleasure. You don't seem totally sure, Ken, about the idea of Alonso as a manager. I would have thought, I mean, he wasn't he a captain at a very young age, a bit of a leader from quite a young age. Uh, I don't know if he was a Real Sociedad captain. No, I thought he was. Uh, he may, he may well have been. I'm not sure. Um, yeah, I mean, he's he, he's been one of the most intelligent players of his generation. I mean, and I, I speak in terms of his his game intelligence. You know what I mean? Um, he's he always comes across quite well. I mean, I mentioned the Diego Torres book there. He does seem like a bit of a cards close to his chest merchant, you know, a guy who no one was quite sure where his loyalties actually lay, but they suspected that the loyalties lay pretty close to home, uh, you know. But look, it's a competitive environment, Real Madrid dressing room. You got to look out for number one. Um, uh, as to whether Xabi Alonso make a great manager, he may, he may well. I mean, you're never going to know these things, really. But as Sid points out, you know what a. He's certainly worked with with a lot of the great managers of, I mean, all of the sort of top managers in recent times. I mean, if you if you look at them, they have been the the main Champions League winning managers of the last uh, fifteen years: Ancelotti, Benitez, um, Mourinho, and Guardiola. Tim Vickery joins us. Tim, we might start with Di Maria, actually, who we spoke to Sid Lowe about in the last few minutes. One of two Argentinian players to have signed for Manchester United. Sid thinks that. The idea of revenge and showing Man- showing Real Madrid what they're missing, uh, allied to the feeling of being a major player at Manchester United, could benefit Di Maria quite a lot, and he'll be a good signing because of that. Would you go along with that? Yeah, yes, I would to 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 a very very large extent. I think one of the things that which is which is happening here is that uh, Real Madrid and Barcelona they can't possibly make everyone that they buy feel important, uh, and Di Maria is a a, a, a real victim of this, I think, because he has done everything that his club would, would have asked him in, in, a, in a football sense. And this time last year, everyone thought he was on the way out uh, when uh, Real Madrid bought Gareth Bale. And instead, Di Maria had an absolutely cracking season, was undoubtedly, I think, the man of the match in the Champions League final. And uh, Real Madrid, with this kind of compulsive buying, they go out and acquire yet another left-footed attacking midfielder, this time in James Rodriguez. Uh, and um, so there, there, there's simply no way that Di Maria can 
can be important consistently in that Real Madrid setup. Um, a little bit like, I suppose, Alexis Sanchez, who's just uh, uh, repaid plenty of his transfer fee with that goal that he scored for Arsenal. There's no way that he could feel that he could be as important in the Barcelona setup as as he can be now at the Emirates. And I think it's a similar thing with uh, with, with Di Maria. Um, I'm seeing lots of people describe this as a panic buy or a desperation buy. And I think that's a little bit too tabloid. That's a little bit too sensationalist for me. And that's people trying to link this to, to the bad moment that, uh, that, Real, that uh, United are going through. Um, I think the panic and the desperation will be in the eyes of those who have to defend against Di Maria because uh, Di Maria in, in, in full flight is, uh, is a very, very difficult player to defend against. Okay, so you're a fan of that signing. Marcus Rojo, though, I, I'm under the impression, Tim, that you're a bit more sceptical about his ability to adapt to Manchester United. A, a little bit more so, yes. I mean, he, he's, there's no doubt about it. He was one of the, the success stories of the World Cup. I'm going into the tournament. Um, people saw him in Argentina as one of the weak points of the team. Um, in, in fact, he did very well playing at left back. Uh, got forward well. and in, if, if you compare him with, with, say, Zabaleta on the right, and Zabaleta is a is a fine player and a, and a, and a fine character, but uh, Rojo did much more in attacking terms than Zabaleta and also defended much better than, than, than Zabaleta. And I can see why Louis van, van Gaal w- w- would have been interested when he saw Rojo, of course, at close quarters in the World Cup um, semi-final where, where Argentina eliminated Holland. Uh, and, and Rojo gives you the option of someone who can play left-back, but also someone who can play centre-back, uh, which means that if, if Van Gaal will persist in his back-three formation, and it's a formation that needs very specific requirements from your three defenders, that there aren't that many centre-backs who are happy in a back-three uh, formation. And I think Rojo is a player who can do that. Uh, you can imagine him as uh, the left-sided defender in a back three. You can also imagine him as a, as a conventional left-back or even perhaps as a centre-back in a back four. So th- there is, there's lots of defensive versatility that, that he offers. Um, but my question, Mark, is, is this one of those signings where the club are, play, are paying over the odds just on, on, on the back of one World Cup tournament? And uh, will Rojo be able to defend at the level of the Premier League. Um, I think it's significant that uh, he missed the World Cup quarterfinal through suspension, picked up a couple of cards. Now, that was in a tournament where referees seemed very, very reluctant to give out cards. Might his uh, his, his uh, defensive uh, capabilities be a little bit exposed in the Premier League? So that, that that's a doubt I have about him. We want to talk about Dunga, Tim, but I just have a quick question for you on the. Uh, I mean, you, you referred earlier on to Real Madrid's compulsive buying, and we you know we know what their you know how they kind of look at the game. They they kind of seem to value profile above everything else, and it's clear that James Rodriguez after the World Cup had a bigger profile than Angel Di Maria. Do you think that? Rodriguez is is as good a footballer. I mean, we we saw him score brilliant goals during the World Cup and be one of the stars of the tournament. Um, but are, are, you know, are, do you think this is a mistake from Real Madrid to to bring well, to bring him in for and lose Di Maria? Well, I, th- I think James uh, Rodriguez is, is a wonderful player. Um, quite how they'll fit him into the the collective context with the success that Di Maria has has slotted in, especially over the last two years, I'm not quite so sure. He's, he's not quite as quick as, as Di Maria. And the thing that I think Di Maria has done so impressively over the last two or three years is learn how to become a midfielder. Um, and he was a fly. He was a flying winger when he came up, and that's all that he was. Uh, and uh, I think he, he's come on in leaps and bounds, both for Argentina and for for, for Real Madrid, as, as a left-sided midfielder in a 4-3-3. Um, and he, he gives you the pace of a winger, the penetration of a winger in the final third of the field. Uh, and also he gives you someone who's learnt to position himself, who's learnt to play for the team. And Louis van Gaal has been making these points, been describing uh, uh, Di Maria as... as, as as a midfielder, now he can pl- he can play him on the wing, and United are, are a team with a with a great tradition of wing play. So you, you can you can play him as a conventional winger, but you can also play him in that midfield three. He's learnt how to do that. He's learnt how to position himself, how to defend, how to slot in there. Uh, and uh, I'm not entirely sure that Rodriguez gives you the same capacities as a winger. 
that um, that that Angel Di Maria does. So it's not a straight like for like replacement. Um, and uh, well, I, I think one of the reasons here is profile, and one of the reasons is selling shirts. And Di Maria is never going to be a glamorous player in in, in that sense. And he, he looks. He looks a little bit like a greyhound, doesn't he? He's whippet fast and he looks like a greyhound. His nickname, Fidel, comes from a noodle because he's as thin as a noodle. And so that, that kind of glamour thing, we'll remember more than a decade ago, uh, Real Madrid decided not to buy Ronaldinho because they thought he was too ugly. And he played some of the best football anyone's ever seen for two or three years for Barcelona. Uh, Real Madrid's priorities, I thought, looked a little bit warped then. And are probably still a little bit warped now. Is that what glamour is, Tim? We had this uh, bit of a we touched on it last week. Um, is glamour just looks? Is it is, is it as simple as that? Well, I think it's part of it, isn't it? I think that's that, uh, especially in this this globalized celebrity, uh, endless Big Brother close up kind of age that, that that we live in now. I think that that's that that's part of it, isn't it? Would you agree? Yeah, well, this is uh, the conclusion we came to last week. Certainly, Kieran on our show was, was, was pretty adamant that that's what people... It's almost a euphemism when people talk about selling shirts or glamour. It's essentially how handsome a footballer is. But I wanted to ask you about Dunga, not necessarily a glamorous footballer, no. um, not a glamorous manager um, so far in his career, but he's um, back involved now with Brazil. And this wasn't the radical change that almost everybody seemed to be calling for. People have had time to get used to it now. Um, has there been a softening of attitudes to Dunga? A little bit, perhaps. Um, you're quite right. It wasn't the change that everyone was used to. In fact, it, I think he was brought in exactly to forestall any demand for change. You know, to say there will be no change. Um, and he was chosen, uh, I've, I've discovered this recently, um, by the the president of, of Brazil's FA. Now, we've talked about him in the past, Jose Maria Marin. And his background is in, is in far-right politics. Uh, and uh, going down the Dunga line is very, very much the nationalist option. It's very much we're scared of the outside world. We're scared of a foreign coach. We're scared of, 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 of innovation. Uh, and Dunga, in his, in his first spell as coach, he talks about patriotism until the cows come home. What exactly patriotism means, I don't really know. Uh, it, it seems to be defined as in, in, in Dunga's terms as that you can use the position to promote your daughter who's a, a stylist, and Dunga was wearing, wearing her designs. Um, and, uh, but you can't have any alternative vision because th- that, that apparently is treachery. Um, a snarling person, I think, Dunga, who, who's fueled by anger. Now, he used that as a player to develop, and he wasn't a glamorous player, but he, got a be- he became a better player. Um, he, he showed an, an evolution, and the Dunga who played in the 1990 World Cup was a very limited holding midfielder. By 1994 pure force of mentality, pure force of personality had turned him into a midfielder with a very good range of passing. 1998, I don't think he should have played. I think he'd shot his bolt by then. But it'll be interesting to see if he's capable of of evolution as a coach. Um, I I think most people would would clearly see Dunga's first spell between 2006 and 2010 as part of the problem, as part of the movement that's led Brazilian football to where it is now. And his team could really only play on the counter-attack. They were a counter-attack and set-pieces side. And they were held at home in World Cup qualification by Bolivia, by Venezuela, by anyone who could get men behind the ball. They struggled um, against uh, opponents who couldn't give them, the, give them the counter-attack. We shall see in this second spell if, if Dunga has, has developed, has, has, has um, rethought his game a little bit. And the early indications would seem to be no. Um, but your question there, ha- have attitudes softened mm. to, uh, to him? Uh, I think they have a little bit after his first squad. And all you really need to do to get some of the Brazilian media on side is call up more domestically based players, however much of a fantasy that, that, that may be, um, given the, uh, the, uh, the, the poor current moment that Brazilian domestic football is, 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 uh, is, is going through. And Brazilian domestic football, let us remember, it's paying salaries 40, 50 times greater than the rest of the continent, but it couldn't qualify one single team for the semi-finals of this year's Copa Libertadores, South America's uh, equivalent of the Champions League. Um, but there are a few more domestically-based players in his squad, which will face Colombia and Ecuador in, in the next, next few days. Um, only 10 of the World Cup squad being called up. Would have been 11, I think, but Thiago Silva is, is injured. 
Um, some mystifying new faces, I think, given the age. And he's brought in some new faces who are around the 29 mark. You would think, what's the point of doing that when you're embarking, embarking on, a, on, a, on a new, new cycle? Um, and th- they've made a change, Brazil, in the light of that 7-1. The original idea was going to be they were going to mix their squad. Half of it was going to be made up of established players and the other half was going to be made up with under-21 players grooming for the Olympics in 2016 when they'll be under-23. That was the original plan. After the 7-1, they've decided that what they need is immediate results. So they need... Uh, an experienced first squad. So what they've done is, in fact, they've called up two entirely different squads. They've called up one under-21 squad, which will play a couple of games in the Middle East, and they've called up this relatively experienced, although renewed squad, that will will play under Dunga, that will play against uh, Colombia and Ecuador. The thing you have to factor in with this desire for immediate results is that these next few months are entirely the silly season in South American international football. In the four-year cycle, this is the year where the South American teams will be playing friendlies against each other in the United States and they'll be making the trip over to the Far East, to Japan and South Korea and China, um, to make money. Um, so and Brazil are facing a Colombia side who've only just reappointed their coach and they're facing an Ecuador side who have a, who have, who have a stand-in coach. So really, I don't think results over these next few months will tell us anything at all. Um, the, the, the competitive cycle starts again next June with the Copa America. And then straight after the Copa America, we start World Cup qualification on the road to 2018. It's only then that results matter. So you might argue that Brazil's decision, that, immediate, that results are immediately important in order to shore up prestige after that 7-1. Um, you might come to the conclusion that this strategy where you need results right from the start in order to shore up Brazil's prestige, you might come to the conclusion that, 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 that that's a flawed strategy from the start because uh, results over the next few months are really not going to tell us very much in these friendlies, I think. I saw a bit of Dunga on television during the World Cup and he actually struck me as being quite sharp, you know what I mean? He didn't seem like... Um, he's, he's obviously a bit of a hard man, you know, but uh, he didn't seem like, you know, thuggish or anything like that. He, he, was, he was a guy who was speaking in, in fairly perceptive terms, I thought, about the game. Um, I wondered, though, how, how his, his public relations are now, because it wasn't great, the circumstances in which he left. He was having a war with the biggest media group in Brazil, which is always difficult for a manager. Has, have hostilities resumed on that front? I, I'm wondering, uh, and, and maybe yourself, Tim, obviously you're doing you know, quite a lot of work over there on television and so on. Have you clashed with Dunga in the past? Um, I've, I've tried to st- steer clear of him. Um, <laughs> there's a reporter I know very, very well who uh, has covered Dunga for, for, for 20 years, player and coach, uh, and uh, is, I respect his opinion entirely, and, and he came to the conclusion that Dunga has uh, sociopathic tendencies. It's all anger. He is fueled by anger. Um, Dunga is the one World Cup captain who's held up the trophy, not as an act of celebration, but as an act of, act, act of vengeance, um, when he, he, he was swearing when he held up the, 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 the World Cup as a player in 1994 uh, he was swearing at all those who he described as traitors who'd, who'd written off the Brazil side and so on anger fuels him and a lot, a lot of that anger is, is, is directed at the press um, unfortunately and he's taken this as saying that well the only reason that people are criticising my appointments is because of, of my press relations and that's really really not the case and the main reason that, that people have criticised his appointment is that, that people are unsure that the brand of football that he displayed when he was coach, and it, it was brutal. And, and Dunga is a, is a prime anti-esthete. And the thing that Dunga will never understand is why Brazil's 1982 team are popular. He will never understand this. And he, he, he's referred to them as specialists in losing. Um, that, 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 that kind of aesthetical appeal that the Brazilian national team have, he won't understand it. And he, he, he's gone on record, and, and this, I think, shows how dated his thinking might have been. He's gone on record when he was, was previously Brazil coach as saying that the only reason that people want Brazil to circulate the ball the way they did in 1982, it's all a European plot to try and ensure that Brazil lose. <laughs> and, and, and if you look at the teams that, have, that won the last two World Cups, they've circulated the ball wonderfully well. 
So that that will be a key question, I think, of this second spell of Dunga in charge. Has he 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 rethought his his philosophy in terms of midfield play? And it was very surprising to me just how brutal his side was in that first spell, because as I said earlier on, and Dunga. Uh, through force of personality, became a midfielder who could pass the ball very well. But I, I well remember being in the, in, the, in the stadium when his side beat Argentina in the final of the Copa America in 2007, which was a great achievement. Brazil were, were under strength. Argentina had a very good side. Brazil beat them 3-0. There, there, there were lots of, of things to be positive about, about that Brazil performance, but they committed 37 fouls. And it was just stop the rhythm, stop the rhythm, stop the rhythm. And I remember after the, the, the press conference after that, that game, when he walked in, the Brazilian press en masse stood up and applauded. Uh, and uh, I, I thought that was quite depressing. I, I thought, you know, is, is that really, really the way that you want to win? You know, don't you realise that you are Brazil? That you, that there should be something more about you than, than this. But Dunga wouldn't see it that way. And, and, and he is pointing to his results between 2006 and 2010. And if you look at the percentages, they're not bad at all. If you look at the, the, the level of performance, I don't think the level of performance was particularly good. And I think they went out of that World Cup unmourned by the world in South Africa in 2010. So I'm hoping against hope for something a little bit better this time. Okay, Tim, brilliant. Thank you. Thank you. It sounds to me that uh, Dunga, I'm sure the comparison has probably been made many times before, but Dunga equals Roy Keane. Well, I... In the sense that we're talking about, I'll tell you why, right? That story that Tim says of Dunga lifting the world as he's lifting the World Cup trophy, he's muttering obscenities towards Sh- screaming obscenities <laughs> at the uh, asse- well, not the assembled press back necessarily, but essentially any the world me- the world press. the world's press reminds me of the Roy Keane story. Was it against Shelburne or somebody? This is a famous one. I think it was from his book where he had been showered with affection from whatever Irish club it was. He was coming back to play against as Manchester United captain, but there was one one young lad or maybe one um, owl lad who uh, was maybe buttering an obscenity or indeed just raising a middle finger to Roy Keane. And he's the guy who Keane saw in the middle of all these people telling him how great he was. Seems to be a bit of a similarity there. But yeah, you know, but again, with that Roy Keane story, I always think, obviously, I mean, if you, you know, if you say, Kieran, you come in wearing a lovely crisp white shirt and there's just one little um, coffee stain on it. Mm. That's the tiny bit that little I'm, red dot on a cashmere white cashmere sweater. That's the bit. That's that's what I'm going to say. You know, it's just mm. uh, it, it's it does kind of what what's different stands out. Uh, in the case of Dunga, the comparison between him and Keane. Well, I think first of all that Roy Keane was a better footballer than Dunga. Um, I think he was a much better player than him actually. Um, Same type of player though. Uh, warrior, small warrior type in midfield who taught themselves how to pass it well enough to be world class. Yeah. Um, Although I think I think Keane was more dynamic, was the, yeah, definitely. Best, yeah. Um, I mean, doing, I mean, I think back to the '94 World Cup, they both played in that, and Keane, you know, the way that he played against Italy. I remember his run down the left. You know, Dunga never did anything like that. In his Keane's life. more obviously charming as well. I don't think Keane has ever, certainly as a manager, he hasn't gone to war with the media in the way that Dunga has. Um, he, he hasn't. I mean, Dunga, as you say, has taken on the biggest media organization in Brazil. Quite and in quite an obvious way, he's told yeah. players, he's admonished players for doing interviews at times. All these things, and not that the, the media is the most important <laughs> player here, but it would seem to me certainly that the public persona of Keane is okay. The guy can lose it, but for the most part, he's quite charming and quite. As funny. James Young was was mentioning, I mean, uh, I think that they both don't like when mobile phones go off when they're trying to talk. Oh, really? Dunga's on that. Yeah, wasn't it James Young telling us? Uh, a little while ago, um, essentially, that some guy's phone had gone off in the uh, press conference, and Dunga um, just started cursing. He's like under his breath, just. Uh, but it was all getting picked up by the microphone. So Dunga was there, like silently muttering curses at this guy for for the phone, just in this <laughs> really quite weird way, uh, not realizing that everything was being all this audio was being recorded. Um, whereas Keane directly confronted the issue when it arose, that's good manners. Um, so, but you know, I mean, subtle difference. Again, both, both of them just like like uh, people just to, to pay the appropriate respect. Always good to have Sid and Tim on to to the best people we speak to about football. Murph, we're talking to some good people about Gaelic football later on, and we're chatting to US Murph. Yes, we have uh, the A team: Ushi McConville and uh, Anthony Moyles. 
in talking about the two gigantic, mega, supreme, deluxe All-Ireland semifinals. <laughs> Uh, on They're just weekend. standard matches, Ken, don't worry. Standard matches, don't worry, Ken. <laughs> Not 180-minute long marathons. And uh, we're also talking to US Murphy about Ferguson and uh, the almost complete silence from uh, the America's most prominent athletes on goings-on uh, in Missouri over the last couple of, couple of weeks. And tomorrow, just a reminder, we will have a big interview, in-depth interview with David Bedil. If you haven't heard the Bill O'Hurley chat, that's there already. Have a listen. You can also check out our new website today. Looking forward to, I'm excited about that, I should say, secondcaptains.com. So get on to that one. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at secondcaptains, facebook.com forward slash secondcaptains. We'll talk to you again later on. Thanks, Kieran. Thank you, Owen. Thank you, Kenneth. Thank Thanks you, Kieran. Thank you, Owen. Thanks for listening. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.